Welcome to the second episode of our series, Cool Agriculture. I'm Marcy Tretlong. And I'm Shermaine Lee. In this series, we are looking at how, if the U.S. and China collaborate on research, more solutions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture are possible. And in this second episode, we look at rice. Why? Because about 10% of global methane emissions come from rice production. And methane is 80 times more potent than carbon dioxide. China is also the world's largest rice grower. As many as 30 million hectares of land were being used for rice farming there in 2021, producing over 200 million tons of rice. That's about one-fifth of the world's rice paddy fields and close to a third of global rice production. Mm, this makes sense to me because rice is very important in Chinese culture. My family always has a port of rice for dinner, and about 65% of families in China are doing the same. But this also creates an issue. These paddy fields become the country's biggest source of methane emissions making up about 40% of its total agricultural emissions. Rice farming also produces nitrous oxide, the greenhouse gas we talked about in our last episode. And again, it's a balance of chemical fertilizers and water that makes the difference. So where to begin? First, let's travel back in time to Madagascar in 1961. That year, a French priest named Henri de Lulani moved to Madagascar. Henri was trained as an agronomist in Paris and was familiar with rice cultivation. But when he got to Madagascar, he was surprised to learn just how interwoven rice was with the Malagasy culture and history. 20 years later, in 1981, Henri opened an agricultural school on the island and began teaching a special farming method called the System of Rice Intensification, or SRI. A year later, he started a local NGO named Tafisina that invited agricultural experts to work with farmers and improve rural rice production on the island. Tafisina began reaching out to various scholars, and they found Dr. Norman Uphoff, who at the time was the director of the Cornell International Institute for Food, Agriculture, and Development in New York. Together, Dr. Opuf and Tefisina tried to find ways to improve the yields from rice paddy fields. We've got to get those yields up from two tons per hectare to three or four, maybe. And I remember the president of the NGO saying, not a problem, uh, no, no problem. We can get five or 10 or even 15 tons per hectare without new seeds and without fertilizer. This is Dr. Opoff, who recalled his Madagascan experience with us from his office at Cornell University in upstate New York. He told us that at the time, he was skeptical about the NGO's plans to improve rice farming yields. You can't do 5, 10, 15 tons per, per hectare when you're already doing only 2 tons on poor soils, very poor soils. didn't make any sense, but since they were quite confident, I thought, well, these they should be able to get three or four tons. And so they provided trainers for, firstly, they could only get 38 farmers to try these methods, but turned out these farmers averaged eight tons. Mm-hmm. 
After this, the system of rice intensification became his main research area, and he has now tried it out in many different soils in different continents, including China. And that started a U.S.-China cooperation, looking at how the system of rice intensification, or SRI, could be used. Along with other co-benefits, SRI was found to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in rice farming. But how are greenhouse gas emissions produced from rice production in the first place? Well, rice fields are usually inundated with water, and that flooding blocks oxygen from getting into the soil. So without oxygen, bacteria decomposes the plant stems and roots, which creates methane emissions. That's why the Chinese word for methane is jiao qi, which means swamp gas. As the flooded fields start to dry out, methane emissions no longer emanate from the plant stems and roots because oxygen is toxic to the methane-producing bacteria. But this does not stop the emission of greenhouse gases, as oxygen can penetrate the soil. Any leftover fertilizer can produce nitrous oxide emissions, and nitrous oxide is 300 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. Farmers and researchers have been trying to reduce the level of flooding by using something called alternate wetting and drying. This means lightly flooding the field after the rice is planted, then allowing the water to evaporate, which exposes the soil to air, then flooding it again. Because the flooding level is lower, less water is needed for rice cultivation. The problem is. Alternate wetting and drying could actually emit more nitrous oxide, so a balance has to be found. Too much water means more methane, and too little water means more nitrous oxide. And China is aware of this, of course. This is, um, 大概是那个二二年的时候，这个中国农业农村部它发布了一个这个农业农村的减排固碳的实施行动方案。That was Dr. Niu Kunyu, professor at the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences. She researches how to reduce emissions from rice cultivation in China. In about 2022, the Chinese Agriculture Department announced a plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And among the top ten suggested strategies, slashing methane emissions in paddy fields is the first priority. The document proposes strengthening the water management of the rice fields, promoting irrigation methods that save water, and developing new rice varieties that are low carbon and high yield. She told us that the methane from flooding the paddy fields accounts for 80 percent of China's agricultural methane emissions, with the remaining mostly coming from burning rice straw. And she said that in order to reduce emissions, farmers' cooperation is critical. 另外还有一些那个指导性的意见，比如说在这个二零二二年二月份的时候 ，In February last year, the government gave some guidance on a compensation policy targeting methane in paddy fields. The government launched this after 2020, but some previous policy that aren't primarily aiming to reduce greenhouse gases were doing the same before. Like reducing the use of chemical fertilizers since 
Dr. Neo also mentioned that China's Northeast region is using precision rice farming, very similar to the 4R initiative in the U.S. that we talked about in our last episode. But they're adding new technologies that don't just tell farmers how much chemical fertilizers to use. They also tell them what level of flooding is required to minimize methane emissions. Using this new management system on all farms in China will not be easy, though. Overpopulation and land scarcity is an issue in China. Like in the south, the farm size is usually quite small, so the cost of monitoring emissions and applying the system will be quite high. Whether this new tech can be applied to these small individual farms will remain to be seen. It is more feasible when the tech is more mature and reaches a lower cost. Dr. Neo said that the U.S. and China can work together to develop technology and management systems for these small-scale farms, especially to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in paddy fields. But technology sharing isn't happening as much now. As it was before, and U.S. and Chinese agriculture is quite different. China is filled with millions of small farms, usually less than two acres, whereas U.S. farms are much larger in scale. And U.S. farmers, well, they really represent the heartland of America. We're going to have what they call a pie auction, and、uh, just get a lot of people, get a lot of people around the community to bake. Pies and cakes and any sweets. We'll just auction off all the items to raise money for our community center. When we reached out to rice farmer Kenneth Graves, who is also the chairman of the Arkansas Rice Growers Association, we caught him just as he was returning from a community fundraiser. I think the well, the last time we had it, we had a、uh, someone fixed a large banana pudding, and two two duck hunters. Uh, started bidding on it, and I think the winner paid four hundred dollars for banana pudding. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, banana pudding's hard to beat. For U.S. rice farmers, China could be a huge export market for them. Arkansas, I know for Arkansas, we raise maybe depends on the acreage,、uh, anywhere from one hundred to one hundred twenty million bushels a year, and of that total, we re Roughly,、uh, export fifty percent and use fifty percent for domestic. In the United States, we usually have probably on average like two point eight million acres. It's been said that China can eat the entire U.S. rice production in eleven to fourteen days. China is a huge market that we need to get into. U.S. farmers went to China many times to learn which varieties of rice are popular there and how to boost rice farming yields to make more profit. Last year, Kenneth finally tried a new way to grow rice that promised to increase yields. Because I'd seen it, you know, worked long enough and heard enough information that I said, "Okay, well, I think I've got some fields." That I can、uh, try that on. You know, you don't want to try something new and then it doesn't work for you. You know, you may try sort of like a little experimental spot and see how the yields work. You don't want to do a big field and lose money, and especially if you're a, a smaller farmer. You know, you can't absorb the cost as much as one the larger farmers with a lot of acres. 
Kenneth said this farming technique called row rice has gained momentum in Arkansas. And in recent years, about 17% of farmers were growing row rice to save water. Okay, so we've outlined how rice production creates methane and nitrous oxide emissions and the challenges U.S. and China researchers face to get rice farmers, large and small, to adopt to new methods that reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So let's get back to our earlier discussion on the system of rice intensification. What is it and how are the U.S. and China collaborating to improve it? Dr. Apov told us that SRI, or the system of rice intensification, is based on four main principles, and one of them is indeed reducing water application. He told us that not flooding the paddy fields is also good for the soil, a huge carbon sink. When you keep the field flooded, oxygen from the air can't reach the roots through the soil because you have this blanket of water which greatly impedes the, the flow of air. Whereas if you don't keep the flooded, if you even strip the soil a bit on the surface, where oxygen reaches the roots, they grow bigger and deeper. And also if you have oxygen reaching the soil, the aerobic soil organisms will grow better than if you're keeping it flooded because you're suffocating the roots and the soil organisms. The other three SRI practices are as follows. Quick and early plant establishment, adding organic matter in the form of compost to the soil, and reducing plant density. We put together, testing them all with farmers, uh, was single seedlings, widely spaced, planted them in a square pattern rather even than rows. Also, originally he started SRI with fertilizer, but very poor farmers couldn't afford fertilizer, so he switched to compost, which also improved the soil structure. So the soil has more porosity, it has more water circulating in it, it has more air in it, especially if you're not flooding. And so you create a very be much better environment for the growth of the plant roots and of the soil organisms. This means higher yields in bad soil with minimal use of water. Human-caused climate change leads to more frequent and severe extreme weather events like droughts. So the system of rice intensification is regarded as climate resilient. And that's been one of the attractions for many farmers who are living in water short conditions already. Uh, we found that on average, uh, while the yields of SRI went up, they use 22% less total water on average and 35% less irrigation water on average. So you can have less water and get more yield, which become really, really essential for meeting food needs in the future as our water becomes scarcer or at least more unreliable. With such a promising result, you'd think that a lot of U.S. farmers would adopt this methodology. So we're just starting, I think, to get some uptake in the U.S. Uh, California, I'd love to get some interest going there because they have such water stress, which is only going to get much, much greater. Thousands of miles away, scholars in China are also interested in the system of rice intensification. One of them created his own variation in Sichuan province. He experimented using biodegradable plastic to cover plant biomass mulch and used no-till soil management. Dr. Abhoff and this scholar together published a paper on this new method back in 2019. 
，因为我们四川四川四川盆地，包括四川省和四川 basin is a very important location for rice paddy fields to adopt regenerative agriculture and also produce high yields. These fields also emit lots of methane, so there's a need to revolutionize agricultural development that makes sure both food quality and the environment are taken care of. This is Dr. Lu Shihua, a researcher from the Sichuan Academy of Agricultural Sciences in Chengdu. He told us that he adjusted the system of rice intensification recommendations to suit Sichuan Basin's conditions. Dr. Lu said plastic film covers can reduce the need for irrigation, as it slows surface evaporation and conserves soil moisture. Rice can then be more drought tolerant. In 2004, they had, I think. 1,133 hectares. Six years later, was over almost 400,000. So this this one our biggest success story with SRI was in Sichuan Province with Department of Agriculture. 那么在零五年、零六年、零六年也是一个特大干旱的年份。From 2005 to 2007. Droughts were quite serious in Sichuan Basin, but a few trial places still reported high yields. Dr. Liu also said the methane reduction is 30% more than conventional rice farming. The other catch is, of course, the use of plastic. Dr. Liu found that although the film covers made with polyethylene materials can easily be peeled off and recycled, microplastics can stay in the soil for decades and risk becoming part of our food systems. He then started testing with biodegradable film cover. And the results have been promising, but right now the cost of these covers is still three to four times higher than polyethylene ones. It's not easy to convince farmers to use them. Dr. Liu didn't stop at plastic mulch variations to SRI. He also looked at hybrid rice. Hybrids are a much hyped technology that produces seeds from two different parents, and they can outyield other rice crops. One of these hybrid varieties that shows a great potential is called PR23 perennial rice, and what's interesting is U.S. and China scholars work together to discover it. The perennial rice PR23 is a hybrid cross, and this is one of the ways that you arrive at a perennial grain crop. In the case of PR23. Its、uh, Oryza sativa is the species of rice, which is a very common rice in China, and it's crossed with rice relative from Africa. And all they're doing is trying to bring some of the perennialism, some of the genes, into the annual rice. This is Tim Cruz, chief scientist at the Land Institute in Kansas. Tim published multiple books on perennial crops and also worked with his Chinese counterparts on PR23. He told us that PR23 doesn't just outyield their peers, but when combined together with regenerative agriculture, further reduces greenhouse gas emissions. It's amazing how fast the conversion of these fields from annual rice to perennial rice sequestered soil carbon. They were accumulating more carbon in the soil as soil organic matter, and that's one of the goals of 
what is referred to as regenerative agriculture in the U.S. And that happens because perennials invest more in their roots than annuals. They have larger root systems. And so more carbon goes into the ground that then can decompose and turn into soil organic matter. Tim wasn't the only one excited about this hybrid variety. The Land Institute signed a Memorandum of Understanding with the Chinese government to cooperate on developing perennial grains internationally. And Feng Yihu's group has similar ambitions, and so we are overlapping and joining forces in a, in a, in a really productive and collaborative way. We're talking about here in terms of long-term food security and soil health. And, and achieving a, a kind of agricultural transformation that could help so many people. We had the opportunity to meet Dr. Feng Yihu in Washington, D.C., while he and Timothy were in town to receive an award from the American Association for the Advancement of Science for their collaborative research on PL23. His clothing was so simple and rustic, he looked like he was still a farmer. We couldn't resist asking him to describe the path he took to eventually discover PL23 perennial rice. I was born in a farming village and I studied agriculture. After graduation, I did research in agricultural departments and I also worked at the agricultural administrative units. And then I started teaching agriculture at a university. So from childhood to now, whatever I do cannot be separated from farming. In fact, I didn't know that I would do rice research in the future. But as a kid, I saw the field labor in rural areas, and my father's work was very, very hard. In the past, when we were young, it was not mechanized in the 1970s, 80s. We had to harvest by hand. And after a day or two, our wrists were sore. So I started thinking about learning more about farming. At the time, I was going to take the university entrance exam, and I wanted to see if I could study this and help my family. And learn more, he did. He first focused on how to reduce the hard toiling labor, or sinkupusu as Chinese call it, associated with annual rice planting. He wanted to learn more about a perennial rice, one that didn't need planting every year. After many years building a research team, the U.S.-based Land Institute has been financially supporting Hu's perennial rice team at Yunnan University. Dr. Hu tested PR23 in four Chinese provinces, Yunnan, Jiangxi, Guizhou, and Guangxi in 2016 and 2017, and found consistently higher yield in summer and fall than an annual rice variety. Right now, PR23 is well-suited to the warm areas of China. Although, if the winter temperature drops to below 5 degrees Celsius for more than five days, the yield can drop to below that of conventional rice. But perennial rice may reduce greenhouse gases. PR23 can mitigate climate change in two ways. Without plowing, PR23 has a longer time in the soil and can sequester more carbon. The second is that PR23 emits a lot less methane than annual rice. PR23 sounds perfect here, but there's still the balance we discussed earlier between methane and nitrous oxide as the level of water changes in the paddy fields. 
The perennial rice allows the, the farmer to not necessarily flood as much as they do with their annual rice. And so you can go through periods of drying and wetting in ways that you may not be able to in annual crops. It raises the question of whether that, that wetting and drying allows for nitrous oxide to form more. But we don't know if that happens or not. And, and we don't know what the relationship is between methane, which forms when it's purely anaerobic, versus nitrous oxide, which may form when it's, when it's wetting and drying. And it may be the case that this is, we find out that in fact, um, you do have a increase in nitrous oxide with this wetting and drying. And that would mean we probably cannot do that practice as much if we're really worried about controlling greenhouse gases. I, I think that there's gonna be ways to manage the perennial rice to avoid an increase in nitrous oxide. It's definitely a priority of uh, Dr. Fengi Hu's research group to gain better understanding on the greenhouse gas impacts of, of this perennial rice system. And the clock is ticking. If we want to figure out how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from rice farming, we need to do it fast. Dr. Hu indicated to us that scientific cooperation like his with the Land Institute is key. Scientific cooperation has no boundaries and is very important. International collaboration looks for solutions to arising problems. For example, the rice problems in China are very different from African countries, and different problems need different solutions. International cooperation helps us solve these problems together by conducting more trial and error. And more perennial crops are being created based on the PR23 model, thanks to this U.S.-China collaborative effort. The approach taken for the rice, white hybridization, we're trying that ourselves with wheat, and we're trying it with sorghum. And when I say try, we're making really good progress. In fact, the Land Institute is already moving into small-scale commercial supply of the perennial wheat they've developed called Kernza. And that couldn't have happened without this U.S.-China cooperative research on perennial rice. But that's why it's so remarkable that they've had this level of success in China. They've just done it so quickly. And it takes a long time to get the genetics of these wide hybrid crosses to, to cooperate and achieve both high yield, good seed quality, and perenniality. China has a lot of interest in the perennial sorghum, and we share our seed or our germplasm, as they call it, with the, with the Yunnan group in the same way that they've shared their uh, perennial rice. And so we're excited with their partnership. And as COVID restrictions in China have eased? We look forward to returning and seeing the fairly extensive operation that they have for the perennial rice. What did we say in the last episode, Charmaine? Two heads are better than one? Yeah, you remember it right. It's 三个臭皮匠胜过一个诸葛亮. And the innovation of the perennial rice PL23 proves it. 
alongside innovations like SRI, alternative wetting and drying, perennial rice, and the technology needed to measure the greenhouse gas emissions from farms, we also need to capture the methane being emitted from our farm animal friends, cows and goats. Alongside innovations like SRI, alternative wetting and drying, perennial rice, and new technologies needed to measure greenhouse gas emissions from farms, we also need to think about capturing the methane being emitted from our farm animal friends, cows and goats. These are animals that eat grass in order to grow and produce our dairy products. We will talk about greenhouse gas emissions from dairy in our next episode. Now, cow burps and poop sound just like normal waste from livestock farms, but who knows they can be such a major source of greenhouse gases? Listen to the next episode to find out. Hey, Sustainable Asia listeners! I'm Marcy Trent Long, and I'm the executive producer of Sustainable Asia. Charmaine Lee and I are the hosts and producers of this episode. Charmaine Lee wrote the scripts. Zach Chiang, Sam Li Xiaoyu, and Laura Nor Walton are the associate producers. A big thank you to our guests, Dr. Opoff of Cornell University, Dr. Neo Kunyu at the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences. Kenneth Graves of the Arkansas Rice Growers Association, Dr. Liu Shihua from the Sichuan Academy of Agricultural Sciences in Chengdu, Tim Cruz at the Land Institute in Kansas, and Dr. Feng Yihu of Yunnan University. This podcast series is part of a Wilson Center China Environment Forum and Ohio State University initiative called "Cultivating U.S. and Chinese Climate Leadership." On food and agriculture, as a partner in this project, our team has loved digging into ag and climate issues with the support of the China Environment Forum at the Wilson Center. Check out Wilson Center's website links in our show notes to read their excellent research on reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. and China from agriculture. Also, sign up for their highly informative webinar series. On the many environmental issues impacting the two countries, it's a great opportunity to join the discussion to reduce the environmental footprint in the U.S. and China. Alexander Mobison created the intro-outro music made from repurposed and recovered waste items. Thanks for listening. On to the next episode.